Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome to Crosspoint. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my pleasure to deliver God's word to us this morning. We'll be in 2 Chronicles 33, and we'll be considering verses 1 through 13. But as you are making your way there, um, I remember the day very well that I drove to Cincinnati, Ohio to conduct my first funeral. And amidst all of the, the nerves that you could imagine would come with having that responsibility, I remember on the drive from Louisville, um, or for you in the South, Louisville, or however you say it, I remember driving from Louisville, Kentucky, to Cincinnati, Ohio. Check. There we are. I remember the Lord silenced me. Um, that was a joke. That didn't, I don't even, it's not really funny when you have to tell people that you've just made a joke, but, but I remember making this drive and being nervous. And I remember, uh, thinking about the, the eulogy that I would give for my wife's great grandmother. And I, I, to, to be honest, I was not really nervous about being able to, to communicate the gospel because I thought that that would be pretty simple to do. But I do remember thinking, as I was reading in particular the obituary of Chelsea's great-grandmother, that there were so many things I didn't know about her, and that there were still also so many things I wanted to say, but knew I would not have time to say. But really, that is the nature of a eulogy. We take all of the snapshots of a person's life, and we try to sum them up in one final picture at their death. And so we end up taking all of these things and all of these memories and we gather together what we believe would be the best picture of this life and that's what we give. Well, 2 Chronicles 33 is at least in part the eulogy of Manasseh, one of the kings of Judah. And it tells us of a most wicked king, in fact, the most wicked king in the history of the, the kingdom of Judah, and the most gracious God. And it shows us that the major markers of our life are not the great successes or the great failures that will be eulogized at our death, but rather faith and repentance before the one true living God. But before we read, I want to give you uh, really three bits of context to help guide us, because it's going to help us as we are going through here. And honestly, landing in a book like Second uh, Chronicles is difficult because all of these things are happening. You're really not sure where you are. And I'm just going to be honest, if you're ever reading through the Bible and you're like, I don't know, was this before this captivity, after this captivity, where was this prophet in this timeline? I Google nonstop, where am I right now, Right? So I want to help alleviate some of that as we are looking at this. And so three bits of context. The first is this. After King Solomon, King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was instituted to be king. However, one of Solomon's king's servants sought to take over the kingdom for himself. His name was Jeroboam. 
So at this point in history, the, the nation of Israel split into two, the northern kingdom with Jeroboam and the southern kingdom with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and the southern kingdom consisted of Judah and Benjamin. That's what you need to know. There is a, a split in the nation of Israel at this time, and tensions are actually very high between these two neighboring kingdoms. And so we will find ourselves this morning in Second Chronicles in the nation or in the kingdom of Judah. Secondly, as we are looking at Manasseh, I want you to understand something about Manasseh's father, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a very, very good king. In fact, he was so good that he, when he became king, taking up kingship from a horrible king, decided that he would reform the kingdom of Judah. He was going to open the, 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 the temple. He was going to make the, the kingdom worship their God once more. And in fact, he even instituted the Passover meal and invited the northern kingdom to come and celebrate with them. And so for the first time in many, many, many years, you have the northern and southern kingdoms being united under this man, Hezekiah, whom the Lord placed as king. And then third, it's really helpful if we understand that this book is written post-exile. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, we will see that eventually Judah becomes so awful that the Lord sends them into what we know as the Babylonian captivity. There you have Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, you know the stories. But at the very end of 2 Chronicles 36, it tells us that after a period of time, these exiles were sent back under King Cyrus to go and to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall, and you have Ezra and Nehemiah. Why is that important? Because the people reading this history, the people reading the eulogy of Manasseh, would be people who are coming back to the nation for the first time in a very long time. They have been exiled away in Babylon, and they are finally back in their kingdom. And so that will help us as we seek to apply this and understand what the, the author, or, or he's known as the chronicler because we don't know who wrote this book, what the chronicler is actually trying to communicate to us. So we'll read Second Chronicles 33, verses 1 through 9. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Verse 6. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed to your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. 
Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Let's pray. Father God, we pray and we ask of you that you would help us to see you in your word, that you would allow us by the power of your spirit to meet with you, and Father, that you would reveal your good, gracious plan to us in the midst of this disaster of a text, and that you might apply it to our lives to give us courage and comfort and peace before you this day. But Father, we pray that your word would cut where it needs to cut and heal where it needs to heal. And that's not always the most comfortable thing for us, but Father, it's what we ask of you this morning because it's what we need of you. We need you to do a work in us that we cannot do in ourselves. We are at your mercy this morning. Lord, work amongst us for your glory and for our good. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. So a question to guide our time this morning. If yesterday or this week are to be a part of your eulogy, what will these days say of you? If your last week or yesterday or your morning drive here or this coming week or this next year of 2021, if these days are to be a part of your eulogy, what will they say of you? What will these days in your life be marked by? Because there is coming a day when someone will be responsible for creating a eulogy for you, and I hope you are asking the question, what will they say? What is it that I would like people to be known after I die? Because one of the things we must be aware of is that they can only come to that conclusion by the way and by the days of our life. And so I have three observations as we seek to, to cultivate or create the answer that we are looking for. The first is this. Our flesh naturally desires to exchange the things of the Lord for the things of the world. What on earth happened? I, I mean, seriously, think about it for just a moment as you are introduced to this King Manasseh, and I've just told you about his father, Hezekiah, and how awesome he was. What happened? Why such a stark contrast between this godly father and this most wicked king of a son? Well, here, here's a few things that we may be tempted to do. We, we may be tempted to psychoanalyze this and start thinking, well, I'll tell you one thing, Manasseh did not get enough spankings. And then there's another group opposite of you saying, Manasseh was spanked too much. Or we could be thinking, well, maybe Hezekiah just forced Manasseh to go to synagogue too much. Maybe he forced religion on Manasseh way too much. And in fact, maybe, maybe Manasseh really didn't like youth group at synagogue. In fact, maybe he disliked it so much because the youth pastor, once he started preaching, he did not know how to stop. <laughs> Listen, I don't know why you're laughing. I'm preaching to you. But we have all of these things that are running through our mind, and, and, and this is not even in my notes, but can I just be honest with you for just a moment? If you think by bringing your child or your teenager to church 
serves as a risk in their life to drive them away from church, you have underestimated your abilities. Manasseh did not find him in a, in a place where he became so wicked because he was forced to gather with God's people. What, what the chronicler is doing, again, that's the author. I'm going to say that word a thousand times, so just you have to get over it. What the chronicler is doing here is he's giving us an insight, not into the things that happened in Manasseh's life to make him an awful king, but rather the nature of the human heart. It may be that there is no specific answer as to what happened, what series of events in Manasseh's life that forced him into this place. Having a godly father, a godly mother, I guess I'm assuming, but then being a horrible person. What the chronicler is doing here in this text as he is speaking to these returning exiles who have been in Babylon is he is reminding them, he is teaching them about the human heart. He is revealing to them that there is no greater magnetism in the entire universe than that of the flesh to the world. That you will come into this place and your flesh will desire everything that stands against God. Paul helps us in Romans 8 to to see this point super clearly. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. What Manasseh has done is he has pledged his allegiance not to his father or his father's God, but rather to himself and to his desires. Manasseh is simply doing that which he wants to do. And so this book this eulogy, it's an exhortation to these, these returning exiles. It's, it's, it's an exhortation to us that if we are really to serve God, then we must guard our heart from our flesh. If you are really to return to this place and you are really to serve the Lord your God, then you must protect yourself from yourself. And that means you have to be honest about who you are and what your temptations are and the things that you desire that stand against the Lord your God. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 5, it's so serious, this this magnetic pull is so serious, the, the flesh to the world, that Paul tells the church in Colossae that you must put to death what is earthly in you. Paul is telling us the same thing that the chronicler is telling us. The attraction to the world that your flesh has is so strong that it has to die. It it can't be boxed up and placed on a shelf to be visited later. It can't be even a fond memory in your mind. It must die its existence in your life must cease. And so Manasseh serves as a warning to all of us. The only sacred thing to the flesh is the flesh. 
the only sacred thing to your flesh is the flesh. You cannot live in the world and desire the world and find God there. You see, there's so much hope wrapped up in this king, Manasseh. Right? These, these people see the nation of Judah. They look and they see Hezekiah and what a wonderful king he is. And I'm sure there was much blessing from the Lord that was had under Hezekiah's reign. And so we see that he has a son and everyone's excited. Yes, Hezekiah, the good king, has a son. This is the one. He's the one that's going to continue this good reign in Judah. And so I'm sure the people were just thinking, this is wonderful. Maybe we have many, many more years of being blessed by God and serving him. The Bible tells us he did more evil than any king. And in fact, he did more evil than any of the kings that were driven out before the nation of Israel when Joshua went into the land of Canaan. The Bible is saying there's no one as bad as Manasseh. This man, I'm sure beloved by his father, Loved by his father, a most precious son. This man, he murdered his own sons. What happened? The flesh. The flesh happened. Martin Luther, the great reformer, commenting uh, not on this passage, but on uh, Colossians, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 5, I believe maybe verse 1, talking about the lust of the flesh that Paul warns of there. He says this, Martin Luther, the lust of the flesh is not altogether extinct in us. It rises up again and again and wrestles with the spirit. No flesh, not even that of the true believer, is so completely under the influence of the Spirit that it will not bite or devour or at least neglect God's commands. At the slightest provocation, it flares up and demands to be revenged. Listen, church, guest, whoever you are, I don't want for a moment... To come off legalistic. I think legalism is ungodly. It has no place in this church and it is nowhere in the Bible. I don't for a moment want you to see this and think, well, okay, well, what do you mean the flesh is attracted to the world and we cannot function in the world? Are you some sort of legalist? Well, the answer is no, because legalism is ungodly. But I will tell you one thing, I don't want to so fear legalism or the appearance of legalism in my life that I unintentionally weaken God's word on this point. I don't want to so fear being labeled as a legalist that I weaken God's word on the point of the attraction of our flesh to the world and the havoc that it brings into our lives.
Listen, I echo what Luther says. Even the smallest indulgence of the world has the potential to cause addiction within our hearts. We would be fools to think that we can get just a little bit of the world and be unaffected. When in reality, it may be a little bit of the world that drives the addiction that leads to ungodliness. That has to be what happened to Manasseh. This is not a night and day thing where Manasseh was one day a good little boy in synagogue and the next day the worst king in the history of Judah. It doesn't happen like that. It happens through indulging the flesh. Bit by bit. And so I don't want you to see any of this as being a matter of do's and don'ts. But rather, it's, it's, it's a call to be aware of what the world is doing to us and what the world is doing in us. Everything that happens in our lives, everything that comes into our lives, it affects us and it changes us. And it will either do so for better or for worse. The world's probably oldest strategy, I think, is to nurture our sin under the guise of personal fulfillment and happiness. Well, it can't be bad if you feel good about it. That is a lie from the devil. I can only imagine the mind of Manasseh and what was happening and what was going through his head. Listen, I know your daddy was good but he lived a really boring life. If you just do these things, the people will love you. In fact, they will hold you higher than they ever held your father. Listen, Manasseh, I promise you, just do it. And he becomes the worst king ever. And so the message to these returning exiles is they are looking and, and seeking to serve the Lord their God. The message to them, the message to us this morning is the same. If you are to serve the Lord, then you must be on guard. Jesus tells his disciples as he's sending out the twelve, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You must see the way the world devours and you must go in knowing that it devours and yet showing the love of Christ. Be on guard. So for us, this doesn't mean that we are to, to live some sort of monastic life, right? That's, that's not the way the church is called to live. Well, if we can't be in the world or of the world, rather then what we need to do is we just need to uh, make this building bigger. We'll make apartments. We'll all just live here. We'll pray all the time. And Brad will get to preach 24-7, right? You don't ever have to end a sermon, right? Take us through Revelation, Brad, until the Lord comes. Let's end here, right? That's not what the church is called to do. Clearly, we are called to engage the world with the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel message of hope found, the forgiveness of sin found in Christ alone. And so we are, on one hand, called into the world, and yet we are called also to be on guard as we go, 
to realize that even as we are going with the gospel message on our lips, that the flesh will still within us desire the world. And Paul says, then kill it. Put it to death. And so it doesn't mean some sort of monastic life, but it does, however, mean that we are to plod along each and every day of our life with a keen eye for how we might live faithfully. The second point is this. Living in faith is a lifelong willful endeavor where the most extraordinary acts are often the ordinary ones. Let me say it again. Living in faith is a lifelong, willful endeavor where the most extraordinary acts are often the ordinary ones. So we may be tempted to see the solution for Manasseh. Right? All you need to do, Manasseh, is you need to have some sort of big, glorious reform, some sort of big, faithful act to turn everything around. Right? Just, just do reform like your dad. Send send all of the bells away, all the Asheroth away, and turn everyone back to God, right? Just fix all of it. It's easy. Well, that may be the temptation that we have, is to fix his problem simply by making it go away somehow. Just do what your dad did. Just reform everything. Well, you know, that is somewhat of a good idea. So let's see what his dad did. Second Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 3. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. Verse 3, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. What does Manasseh's dad, Hezekiah, do? Coming off the wicked reign of the king before him, he goes to the temple and he sees the doors are broken and he fixes them. He fixes the temple doors. He doesn't, as far as we know, come in with some master plan, some blueprint of restoring all of the gold and all of the beautiful linens. He goes in and he fixes the doors. I believe what Hezekiah would tell his son And I believe what God's Word is telling us this morning pretty clearly is that if we are to reform our lives, if we are to come out of a season of sin, if we are to trust in the Lord for the first time, if we are to understand repentance rightly, if we are to reform in any way, then we must start with worship. We must, before we do anything, behold God's glory. Before any plans are made, before any of that happens, we must enter into the presence of God and behold His glory. Right? I, I, Hezekiah understood the importance of worship. 
he actually understand that the worship of the people of their God was actually the, uh, of first importance. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. It's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to behold God and to worship Him in truth. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and two he covered with his eye, with two he covered, sorry, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. One of the challenges that we face as fallen beings, as sinners, as unbelievers, as believers, one of the great challenges we face is grasping an important biblical irony. That it's by entering into God's awe-inspiring, fear-inducing glory with our sin that our eyes are open to see that God is the only refuge from our sin. What Isaiah understood in that moment, in God's glory, is that he was completely exposed There was no hiding. Everything that was his, everything that he owned, everything that he had done was on display before God. And it terrified him. And it was in the midst of the terror of the glory of God that Isaiah realized he is in the safest place that he can be. Why? Because the glory of God reveals not only our sin but also our Savior. I want to ask you, in in what ways have you been tempted to just totally remodel the temple and leave the doors in despair? And y'all, we have to be clear about this. All the world wants from us is the appearance of being put together. It wants nothing else. All that Facebook, all that Instagram, all of the other things, all of those things, all they want from us is just the appearance of being put together. 
And that even stands true for the believer. Right? I am not condemning you if you take pictures of your devotions. That's awesome and it motivates me. But do not take pictures of your devotions if you have lingering sin in your marriage that you are unwilling to address. Why? Because that's not who we are, church. We're, we're not the types of people that want to be seen as put together and yet a disaster before the Lord our God. That does not only ourselves no good, but no one around us. Because then we start to do this weird thing where we look around, everyone's awesome, they do this well, they're reading through this, I haven't even started on Brad's thing yet, and I'm just over here, I'm squandering everything, and, and they have it all together. Well, I would tell you, if we are Isaiah and we were ushered before the Lord right now, I don't know that your Instagram or your Facebook would be the means by which you would stand in the glory of God. In fact, it may be the thing that you say, God, oh my goodness, I, you have no idea what my Instagram is, right? We're not saying unclean lips, we're talking about our social media. What we have to realize is that, and what we want to communicate as a church and as believers is that it's actually with our sin in the presence of God, with the body, that we actually find refuge from our sin, Man, we so often just want people and ourselves even to just kind of like paint over that stuff. And that's exactly the problem that the Pharisees had. They were whitewashed and nothing inside of them was true. It was a mess. They were disasters. Too often we forsake the foundationally mundane things of the faith for the opulence of being put together. We forsake the foundationally mundane simply so we can look put together. I want to free you from the temptation of doing that. I, I want to point you this morning in the right direction. Because what Hezekiah did was not kind of make everything look pretty. He fixed the doors of the temple. Listen, y'all, we got to get in there and we got to worship, but if we're going to get in there, we're going to have to have nice doors. Well, yeah, but Hezekiah, like, there's, like, animal feces in there. Don't worry about it. We got some nice doors. We'll deal with that after. Right? Let's, let's do what seems mundane first, and then we'll go from there. Let's go to the... Lord in worship first, and then we'll go from there. Let's enter into God's presence first, and then we will go from there. If you are to live faithfully, then you need to meet with the Lord often in prayer and in His Word. If you are to truly live a faithful life, then you must meet with the Lord in prayer and in His Word. The appearance of being put together, the appearance of being faithful will do nothing for you. And I want to be honest with you, it's not fancy, and it's also not easy. You would think that praying would be pretty simple because you can literally do it in your head 
at any time. I will confess to you that my two-year-old prays better than I do. His prayers seem to be focused. I don't think he's a believer, but he just has a way of being able to talk to the Lord and only talking to the Lord. And I can't even sit in my office with an open Bible and have like 30 seconds of attention. It's, it's not glamorous and it's not easy, but it's the way to be faithful. It's, it's fighting. It's, it's plodding along day after day in prayer and in His Word. Because I want you to realize that whatever the world is trying to tell you, whatever popular Christianity is trying to sell you, that it's actually the ordinary means of being a believer that leads you into the most extraordinary moments of God's grace. It's the ordinary that reveals the extraordinary, not the other way around. So Hezekiah's concern was not so much about what must be done. Our concern shouldn't be necessarily about what must be done, but where we must be. We will either choose to be in the world or in the presence of our Lord. And you can only, Christian, enter into the world successfully if you have been in the presence of the Lord. if you so understand that God is present with you wherever you go, that His glory is radiating all around you, only then will we live faithfully. If any change is to come to us, if any change is to come to these returning exiles into the land of Judah, it will be because we and they have first prioritized being in the presence of of the Lord. And then finally, this is a, a revolutionary point. I take full credit for it. God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. There is no doubt in my mind that Manasseh's eulogy is not ideal and it's not the eulogy that I want. Not for a moment do I want to be remembered like what we have just read of Manasseh. I want to be a Hezekiah. Because Manasseh, he stands in infamy as the most wicked king to ever reign in Judah. And yet his life is a beautiful display of the most gracious God. What we need to understand is that we are Manasseh. We are Manasseh. Our wickedness may not be eulogized like this, but our wickedness requires exactly the same amount of grace as Manasseh. The amount of grace that it takes to save Manasseh is exactly the amount of grace that it would take to save my six-year-old son. Why? 
Because God's grace is greater than our sin. Praise God that Manasseh's eulogy does not end there. In verses 10 through 13, we see this gracious God. Starting in 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord as God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Verse 13. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Do you want to know what we mean when we talk about the unfathomable grace of God? It's this. That when God speaks to Manasseh, Manasseh refuses to listen. And yet when Manasseh speaks to God, he hears him. God tries to tell him, and he refuses. And then he suffers the consequences of his disobedience. And in the midst of all of that distress, Manasseh cries out to the Lord, and not only does the Lord hear him, he welcomes him and his repentance. What the chronicler would be reminding these exiles as they're returning is that there is no moment in your life when you cannot or should not cry to God. Even in the deepest pit, even at the moment where everyone's going to look at you and think, well, you're just doing this because you got caught. You're just doing this because you have no other option. What the chronicler says is exactly. It's in that moment, cry to God. Because God, unlike us, He listens. But there is a, and here's where the context comes into play. Verse 13 would leave a huge lingering question for all of these people who have just come back out of Babylon. There's this little phrase in verse 13, restored him into Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Right, that's good and well for Manasseh. We're, we're so happy that that happened for him, that he has a kingdom. But the question that we now have returning to this land is that we don't have a Manasseh. There is no king to rule over us. So if we are to serve you as your people, as your nation, and, and by the way, God, just in case you forgot, you promised David through his son Solomon that his throne would last forever. And uh, just a quick FYI, there's no king here. How are we actually supposed to enter back into the kingdom of God if we have no king? 
And for us, praise God, we live on this side of the cross and we understand what's happening. This is, this is a messianic flare being shot up into the wilderness. You are exactly right in longing and desiring a good king that will lead you to the Lord. You are exactly right. You need to build that anticipation within your heart. You need to understand and long for the man who will lead you as God's people into the kingdom of God. Yes, look for him. Where do we find him? Because they will have to wait a very long time to find that king. But unbeliever, if you are in this room, you have to wait no time. This king has been revealed to us. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Judah, look to the Lord your God. Guard your heart. Your king is coming. So I want to end with this question. Is anyone ever too bad to receive God's grace? Have you brought this morning sins into this room that are simply unforgivable? The answer must be no. What the Bible tells us clearly, what the chronicler wants the nation of Judah to know, is that no one who comes to the Lord in faith will be turned away. There is no one who is irredeemable if they are willing to humble themselves and trust the Lord in faith. And so, I mean, what, the, what, what King Manasseh, what he could not have realized is that it was actually King Jesus who restored him into the kingdom. It was some years later that Jesus Christ would die on a cross. That's the reason he was actually restored before God and given back to his kingdom. And Manasseh could not have known that his crying out for forgiveness that his sacrificing of his sons would be heard and forgiven because of the sacrifice of God's son. So what we see is that the humility of Manasseh and all of his wickedness was met by the grace of God. And so if you think that you're too bad or too far gone, or that the hole or the pit you are currently in is simply too deep, I want to leave you with one final word. Jesus tells us in John 6, starting in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Sinner, your only safe place, your only refuge is in the Lord God. Cry out to Him. Entreat Him. Because He listens. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for this morning and this grace in being able to gather together. Father, I pray your word would be powerful in our lives. And Father, that you would use any of the inadequacies or any of the stumbling blocks that I have placed up this morning, that you would use those in only a way that you can use them for your glory, that you would use your word for the purpose of redeeming and saving lost sinners, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would see this morning that, yes, on one sense, while you are terrifying in glory, it is also in your presence that we find refuge. Father, draw us into that refuge this morning. May we find our safe place and our haven with you. Father, we pray most of all that it would be to your Son's glory that this word would be for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and that you would give us that hope and rejuvenate us this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.